Welcome to the Painter's Dialectic. I am your host, Josh Green, a painter and art educator living in New York City. And today we're going to talk about the American public education system and the suppression of critical thought. Today I'm joined by moral philosopher Dylan Ahn. In today's episode, we will discuss the origins of the American public education system and the suppression of critical thought. In public education, students are taught what to think, not how to think, meaning there is a lack of critical thought. This can lead to a lack of creativity and can negatively affect artists. Without the ability to think for ourselves, we can never unravel the complexities of the world and to truly understand the issues that affect us all. Don't just listen to the podcast, participate in it. Go to our Patreon page, The Painter's Dialectic, and subscribe. We have different tiers with behind-the-scenes content of how we develop these ideas. This will help us to continue making this meaningful content. Check out our Instagram page, The Painter's Dialectic. You can check out my Instagram page, at Josh Green Artist. And you can also check out my website, joshgreenart.com. If you'd like to study with me, go to thegreenatelier.art. Check, 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 check. Okay. Check, check, check. Okay. All right. Dylan, welcome back to the show. Thank you. How's everything going with you? Good. Doing good. It's coming to the end of sort of term, nearly Easter. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, I'm a, I'm a little bit concerned. There's a lot of things on my mind mm. and my heart. And I think, I think we're doing good work, but I think I need to do a better job. Because uh, I've been having what I, I've been talking to civilians. <laughs> and I'm, I'm very concerned. Um, mm-hmm. So I thought we'd continue talking about critical thinking, which for all of history, any person who's, who's made a positive change in the world has valued critical thought. But when I think back on my education that I received, and my school was considered mm-hmm. a good school, I'd never learned anything about logic, I never read anything philosophical. I never read anything about morality or any types of spiritualities. I, um, I barely learned any math. My highest math was just basic algebra, which I know internationally that's it's like calculus or something. Um, I learned very, very little. But you wonder, like, what did I actually learn in school? If I didn't learn anything there of value, what, did, what was I actually learning? And, you know, doing my studies into, uh, into propaganda um, and how art has been used to, to spread propaganda, I thought it might be good to take a dive into the education system in America. Now, I'm just going to say facts. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm trying to be influential right now. And I'm being direct. I'm telling you, the listener, that I'm trying to influence you. And I'm going to do my best to give you facts, but I'm not going to tell you what to think about them, because that would go against the whole point of this, 
right? Mm -hmm. And I hope that you don't immediately feel like you need to pick up a book to find your answers. You know, actually, your self-experience is valuable. That's, that's one of the truest things you have. And anyone who makes progress, they do it by analyzing their self-experience, right? So I wanted, to read, I wanted to read a statement I found that I thought was really beautiful, and then I would go into the history of the American education system. But um, I found this uh, this week. It's called The Western Creed by Charles Tart. And I thought it was very insightful because even though I have gone through an enormous amount of education and everyone I know who's enormously educated, they all end up thinking very similarly despite mm -hmm. all that education. Um, and when I read this, and I'm like, that's pretty much what I learned. And this mindset affected my life for a long time. So here's the, the Western Creed by Charles Tart. I believe in a material universe as the only and ultimate reality, a universe controlled by fixed physical laws and blind chance. I affirm that the universe has no creator, no objective purpose, and no objective meaning or destiny. I maintain that all the ideas about God or gods, supernatural beings, prophets, saviors, or other non-physical beings or forces are superstitious and delusions. Life and consciousness are totally identical to physical processes and arose from chance interactions of blind physical forces. Like the rest of my life, my life and consciousness have no objective purpose, meaning, or destiny. I believe that all my judgments, values, and moralities, whether my own or others, are subjective, arising solely from biological determinants, personal history, and chance. Free will is an illusion. Therefore, the most rational values I can personally live by must be based on the knowledge that for me what pleases me is good and what pains me is bad. Those who please me or help me avoid pain are my friends. Those who pain me or keep me from my pleasures are my enemies. Rationality requires that friends and enemies be used in ways that maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain. I affirm that churches have no real use other than social support, that there are no objective sins to commit or be forgiven for, that there is no retribution for sins or reward for virtue other than that which I can arrange directly or through others. Virtue for me is getting what I want without being caught and punished by others. I maintain that the death of the body is the death of the mind. There is no afterlife and all hope for such is nonsense. Okay. So I just wanted to present that. You think what you want about mm -hmm. it, but I feel like that's where most highly educated people arrive. So let's talk about the American education system. There was education, you know, communal education in, the, in the, the colonies, but let's talk about actual American education. So in 1779, Thomas Jefferson proposed a two-track educational system. The two tracks being, quote, the laboring and the learned. Scholarships would allow a very few of the laboring class to advance. Jefferson says, 
quote, raking a few geniuses from the rubbish. Okay, that's where it started. Um, mm -hmm. 1785, the Continental Congress, before the U.S. Constitution was ratified, passes a law calling for a survey of the Northwest Territory, which included what was to become the state of Ohio. The law created townships, reserving a portion of each township for a local school. From these land grants eventually came the U.S. system of land-grant universities, the state public universities that exist today. Of course, in order to create these townships, the Continental Congress assumes it has to be the right to give away or sell land that is already occupied by Native people. Okay. 1790, Pennsylvania State Constitution calls for free public education, but only for poor children. It is expected that rich people will pay for their child's schooling. 1805, the New York Public School Society, formed by wealthy businessmen to provide education for poor children. Schools are run on the Lancastrian model in which one, a master, can teach hundreds of students in a single room. The master gives a rote lesson to the older students who then pass it down to the younger students. These schools emphasize discipline and obedience, qualities that factory owners want in their workers. 1817, a petition is presented in the Boston Town Meeting calls for establishing a system of free public primary schools. Main support comes from local merchants, businessmen, and wealthier artisans. Many wage earners oppose it because they don't want to pay the taxes. 1820, the first public high school in the U.S., Boston English, opens. 1820-1860, the percentage of people working in agriculture plummets as family farms are gobbled up by larger agricultural businesses and people are forced to look for work in towns and cities. At the same time, cities are tremendously fueled by new manufacturing industries, the influx of people from rural areas, and many immigrants from Europe, like the, the Irish uh, famine, right? During the 10 years from 1846 to 1856, 3.1 million immigrants arrive, a number equal to one-eighth of the entire U.S. population. Owners of industry needed a docile, obedient workforce and looked to public schools to provide it. 1827, Massachusetts passes a law making all grades for public school open to all pupils free of charge. Okay. 1830s, by this time most southern states have laws forbidding teaching people in slavery to read. Even so, around 5% become literate at great personal risk. 1837, very important person in American education, Horace Mann becomes head of the newly formed Massachusetts State Board of Education. Edmund Dwight, a major industrialist, thinks a State Board of Education was so important to factory owners that he offered to supplement the state's salary with extra money of his own. So then we get these businessmen investing in the creation of the public school system. 
Let's jump ahead. 1840s, over a million Irish immigrants arrived to the United States, driven out of their homelands in Ireland by the potato famine. Irish Catholics in New York City struggle for local neighborhoods' control of schools as a way of preventing their children from being force-fed Protestant curriculum. Let's talk about this guy, Horace Mann. So Horace Mann was in the U.S. House of Representatives, a key reformer of the Board of Education in Massachusetts. Now, he was looking for a new way to create a public school system, and he started looking around the world for something to mimic. He finds an incredible school system, one he wants to mimic in Prussia, was today, you know, Germany. So he travels to Prussia to investigate. And also Canada takes interest in Prussia too. They, they also go there. They meet Horace Mann. Um, so he comes back to America and he's like, we have to copy this Prussian system. This is what America needs. And then all the important American educators go to Prussia and they get degrees from Prussia and then come back and staff all the major universities. So by 1900, most of the PhDs were trained in Prussia. And Horace Mann says, quote, the state is the father of children. Horace Mann begins working with Edward Everett, the, uh, the governor of Massachusetts, and they make this Prussian school system mandatory in Massachusetts. Then in New York State, 12 schools take on the Prussian school system. Horace Mann's sister, Elizabeth Peabody of the Peabody Foundation, they set up the Prussian system in the newly conquered South. Okay, and eventually the Prussian school system becomes the public school system. So what, why on earth would they want this Prussian school system? What's so special about it? Well, in the 18th century, uh, Prussia started, they, they created a free and compulsory education for their citizens after Napoleon had defeated them, okay? And they did this because Prussia believed that they lost to Napoleon because the soldiers were thinking for themselves. They were not following orders, they were not obedient, and this led to, you know, Napoleon taking over. So, they decide that they must construct a school system there that oppresses free thought, okay? It makes people obedient. That was um, the focus of the school. So their, their, their values were duty, discipline, respect for authority, and the ability to follow orders. So they were creating social obedience through public indoctrination to instill this loyalty to the crown through the elimination of independent thought. So two key ideas for the creator of the Prussian school system, um, John Locke's, the human mind is a blank slate at birth, right? And Rousseau, the state of nature will degrade without law and morality. All right, so who created the, uh, the Prussian school model? Johann Gottlieb Fitch. So here's some quotes by Johann Fitch. The schools must fashion the person and fashion him in such a way that he simply cannot will otherwise than what you wish him to will. All right, so the goal is to remove free will. 
Here's another quote. Education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils are thus schooled, they will be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as the schoolmasters would have wished. When this technique has been perfected, every government that has been in charge of education for more than one generation will be able to control its subjects securely without the need of armies or police. So, Johann Finch was giving these lectures in 1807 um, in Poland that was occupied by Napoleon. He showed the importance of, of taking away free will and making a really strong Prussian state, a Prussian people. He saw um, communities within that, like the Jewish people. He considered the Jews a state within a state. So he, he saw them as a threat. Anyone who wasn't cohering to this group was a threat. Um, so Johann Fitch is actually considered the spiritual father of modern neo-Nazism. <laughs> okay. And so how did, that, how did that school system play out for the Germans? Making a, a docile and obedient public? I don't know. If you know your history, why don't you just play through that a couple decades and, and look at what happened. So that, that, that is the foundation. There's been other players in the, um, later on in the 1900s, mainly major corporations like the Rockefellers and um, the yeah. Carnegies that influenced it. But um, I think let's start there. That's, that's the foundation of the public school system in America. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so I don't know, I'm not really familiar with the American education system. Yeah. Sort of, I was brought up on like the Hong Kong education system and a little bit of Australia. And I was, I didn't really go to a local school, either. I went to an international school. And it seems that the problem exists sort of in both ways, right? In one sort of way, right, in the way that you've sort of laid out for us, is that if the government or if it's a centralized governance of the education system, it's politicized, right? It's used effectively as a means of, if you'd like, uh, providing an education that is in line with the ideals and with the sort of, um, the sort of thing that the government's, government wants you to know. And I think there's that famous comic by Calvin and Hobbes, which is like, no government is willing to give the, the children the education to overthrow themselves. That would be idiotic. Right? <laughs> so there's a question of power here. And I think the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said pretty much the same thing, right? No political system will allow, right, any of its candidates to be able to overthrow themselves, right? If it you're through if you're given the system, that system is a self-perpetuating system. It must by design allow itself to survive. Right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why would it? Right? So there's an element of problem there when it's a centralized education, when it's dictated by the government. And I, I can see that there are changes in the Hong Kong education system currently when it's influenced right, and is being dictated by China, especially now having uh, more emphasis on things like history. That's usually the strong point <laughs> when it comes to this sort of thing. Right. Oh, but on the other hand, right, in the UK, they have 
uh, I think in the ni- in the 1960s and 70s, they had the opposite problem. So they left education to the public, mm. right? So you, so if you leave education to just normal ordinary people, there's also a problem there, right? And it and it still doesn't run away with politics. So I remember watching a series. I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with. Uh, yes Minister, which is a brilliant sort of comedy series in the UK. It was written uh, by sort of people, but they were fed sort of um, information, insider tips from retired civil servants from the inside of the UK. So they got a lot of good sort of scoops and inside knowledge as to how the government actually views these problems. And there was uh, one sort of sketch that they wrote regarding the state of education in UK. I'm going to read out the script to you and see <laughs> if the UK situation, how that compares to America, <laughs> okay. as we've seen, like a good comparison. So we've got government, now we take a look at public education. So the prime minister is talking with his chief civil servant, right? And he says, you know, look, he's complaining, basically. He says, look what's happened to education, right? It's become politicized. This is a question from a religious studies paper. Which do you prefer, atom bombs or charity? (laughs) 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 Even maths is politicized, right? If it costs five billion pounds a year to maintain Britain's nuclear defenses and 75 pounds a year to feed a starving African child, how many children could be saved from starvation if the Ministry of Defense abandoned nuclear weapons? <laughs> right? So you can see, like, and, it, and that happens a lot as well. Like, even when I was educated, there's some questions that are indeed sort of laden with political undertones. And so his secretary, his civil servant says, well, that's easy, none. They'd, in reality, they'd spend it all on conventional weapons. Right? So even if you save all that money from not doing nuclear weapons, the, mo- the money still doesn't go right, to starving children, just what the public thinks. The government is, knows full well that even if that was the case, <laughs> the money would go to conventional arms anyway. In any case, right, his secretary said, it doesn't really matter. Right? It's just a sum, 5 billion divided by 75. So the prime minister replies, but our children aren't learning to do the sums. Right? The local education authorities might argue they don't need to. Right? They have calculators. Right? So I remember when I was doing mathematics, <laughs> we're, allowed, we're now allowed to use calculators. Right? So the Prime Minister re- sort of rebuttals, he says, well, they all need to know how it's done. Right? The good old-fashioned comeback from parents, right? the older generation. They need to know how it's done. We were all taught basic arithmetic, weren't we? Were we? Right? His secretary asks, what's 3,947 divided by 73? <laughs> right? You know how to do it. Do it right? So it's like, oh, well, I need a pencil and paper to do that. But I could do it when I left school. His secretary says, well, but now you'd use a calculator, mm-hmm. right? That's not the point, right? The, the prime minister says, well, look at Latin. Hardly anybody knows that now, right? Surely you're not saying that Latin, like, you know, mathematics is as useless as Latin. Well, so the his secretary is educated in Oxford, so he sort of says sort of something in Latin. He, the prime minister says, well, I can't believe it. Like, how could you argue that this is useless? You had a strict academic upbringing. Are you denying the value of it? The secretary says... What's the use of it? I can't even call upon it in conversation with the Prime Minister of Great Britain. So what's the point? Right? Education in this country is a disaster. We're, prepa- we're supposed to prepare children for work. Most of the time, they're bored stiff. Right? And so his secretary retorts with, well, I should have thought that being bored stiff was an excellent preparation for work. <laughs> for the working <laughs> right? And so the Prime Minister still wants to argue. He says, well, the school leaving age was raised to 16. Right? Bearing in mind this is 40, 40 to 60 years ago. Now it's 18. Right? Mm-hmm. People are being educated at least in middle school to 18. But they say the school leaving age was raised to 16. But they're learning less. Right? 
And his secretary says, well, we didn't raise it so they'd learn more. We raised it to keep the teenagers off the job market to hold down the unemployment figures. <laughs> <laughs> so the prime minister says, are you saying that there's nothing wrong with education? And his secretary says, well, of course not. It's a joke. It's always been a joke. By leaving it in the hand of the local councillors, local public people, it will always remain a joke. Half of them are your enemies and the other half the sort of friends that make you prefer your enemies. So the prime minister says, so what are you trying to say? Well, he, has, he says, the education will never get any better as long as it's subject to all that tomfoolery in the town halls. Right? If everybody has an opinion on what should be learned and everybody thinks that there's a version of what should, well, nobody can decide. And that's happening as well. Every school system has their own version of what should be taught. And so there is a huge disparity, as we've seen in the UK and in other places, of the level of education. Right? So imagine right, what would happen if you put defense in the hands of the local authorities. Right? You give each council 100 million pounds each and ask them to defend themselves. We'd have a civil war in three weeks. <laughs> right? That's what's happened to education. You let everybody decide you know, what everybody re is required to learn. So you have certain sc schools who do very, very well and they charge sky high prices. Right? And everybody who goes there, if you can pay enough, you get amazing education. And those who can't pay get stuck in, sort of the, sort of in school systems that frankly don't have a very good education. Right? So what's happened? So he explains. Why? Because nobody thinks education is serious the way defense is serious. That's why right? defense is not left in the hands of the local authority, because everybody knows it's a joke. Right? You just don't leave important matters in the hands of those clowns, is what he says. <laughs> right? And, you, and he says, well, Prime Minister, you've left education to them. One must assume that until now, that now you're raising this issue, you must have attached very little importance to education until this point. That's why you're arguing with me. Right? So the Prime Minister responds, well, it is important. It could lose me the next election. <laughs> right? So his secretary goes, ah, in my naivety, I thought you were concerned about the future of our children. <laughs> right? And the prime minister responds with a brilliant ending line. He says, yes, that too. After all, they get the vote at 18. So as you can see, right, either way, in the eyes of the government, this is like a political issue, right? This is from their point of view, education is never going to be about the future of our children and the future mm -hmm. of what, how they're supposed to think. The value in education in the eyes of the government is what they're supposed to think that will help best serve the government's interest. Right. Particularly, if it's a democracy, then it's the vote, right? Or it's the unemployment figures, or if you're a dictatorship, it's, you know, the propaganda, right? It's how you can sway the public to do your bidding, to be in line, right? to toe the national line in the case of China and in Hong Kong. So what, what, what do we do, right? If we leave it in the hands of the government, we're screwed. If we leave it in the hand of the local councillors, we're screwed. <laughs> because the government, if the government cares too much, we're screwed. If the government doesn't care at all and leaves it to mm -hmm. just the schools to do what they want, we're also screwed. <laughs> so what do, what's, what do we do? It seems that... We're in a in a big pickle. It's it's a mess. So, I mean, how about this? It's a thought experiment. Mm -hmm. What's what's at the foundation of uh, of these political systems? Um, you know, I think it might be fear. 
I think we might live in a fear-based mm. system. I think Europe has been in fear-based systems for, as, for a very, very long time. And so how do you know if you're in a fear-based system? Well, what are, you, what are you scared to talk about? What are you scared to think? Mm-hmm. What books are you scared to read? What type of people do you look down on and why? You know, um, are the feelings you have throughout the day stress, anxiety, depression, panic? Uh, do you worry about the future? Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like you can't act in ways you want to act? And that you need everyone's just acting for themselves, trying to get as much for them. You know, I think when I look at 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 a place like New York City, I can see fear everywhere. It's it's mm-hmm. you know, and let's talk about the different flavors of fear. There's greed, mm-hmm. um, ambition, shame, and guilt. Probably very uh, prominent um, types of fears that I see. So if we're taught to fear the person teaching us, we're taught to fear the system, like, mm. you know, the tax system. Um, mm. You know, I'm not a W-2 employee. I do my own work, and it's very complicated and expensive for me to do my taxes. Wouldn't it be great if I could reach out to the IRS and, and get an education on how to do them properly? Mm. And everyone will tell you, no, don't do that. They are not mm. your friend. They're there to catch mm. you. What? It doesn't make you want. Okay, you want taxes. Do you want me to do them right? I want to do them right. Mm. I don't want to do them wrong. So now I have to go pay people to educate me. That's not the government. I have to hire mm. an accountant. I have to hire these people and I, or, or pay some stupid website like TurboTax. I have to pay to pay my taxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or the water system like... I, I'm from Pensacola, which had the worst water in the country. We knew that it was dangerous to drink the water, okay, mm-hmm. for the time I was growing up. So what do you do? Well, you have to buy bottled water, or you have to buy Brita filters, or you have to buy all this stuff. Why would they fix that when you have to buy things, right? Mm-hmm. Or So I don't know. I think we're in a fear-based system, and mm. and... We have, this, we have this deeply ingrained view that we have to fear each other, that there is no mm-hmm. natural sense of morality or, or community. Um, why not? Why not? In, in times mm-hmm. of disaster, like I told you during the hurricanes, we banded together, and we couldn't have done it without each other, and we did that naturally with very little organization. You know, mm-hmm. we had, there, was, there was looters in trucks with guns going around robbing the neighborhoods. We, we armed ourselves. We put up gates in the neighborhood. We had people driving around patrolling to make sure no one was stealing. Uh, we were sharing food. We became a little government when we mm. needed to be. So why do we feel like we have to fear everyone? I don't know. I'll mm-hmm. pass it back to you. <laughs> That's a really good point, right? Actually, I was approached by a philosopher sort of in, uh, who was based in Nepal and also based in Hong Kong who's starting his own brand of philosophy, what he calls fearism. Mm. And he believes, as, as you do, he believes that the essence of all human endeavors is fear, right? I, when I reviewed his book, he asked me to review one of his sort of recent books about this concept. I said that that is true, but there's also a more fundamental reason as to why we fear, right? We only fear when we care about losing something right then we must have a reason to fear and that fundamental reason is ultimately comes back to 
an element of desire, right? We fear to lose our lives because we like living. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we fear to starve because we like not dying and not suffering, right? Similar to the original sort of uh, bit that you sort of mentioned, right? We like things. We have uh, an inclination and aversion to certain things, which is why we fear not having the things we like and fear, you know, things we don't like happening to us. So like in the series Yes Minister, they point a very good question, right? The prime minister, or in that, in that sense, when he was still a minister, believed that government was about morality, doing the right thing, right? His secretary, Sir Humphrey, thinks that government is not about moral issues. That's the church's job. Government is about chaos, anarchy, or stability. That's it. It doesn't deal with anything to do with what it should be done, what is right or what is wrong. All it offers is a sense of stability. And a lot of people, clever people have figured out that in order to, for the government to survive, in order for us, for the government to keep their jobs, it would be better, right, to always have the threat of instability just so that the public forgets, <laughs> right, that once you lose us, you lose the precious stability, right? <laughs> once you have seen chaos, then you'll see the value of the great almighty government providing you the means of sort of security and stability, right? Even if it costs your freedoms, right? So I remember writing an article as I was in Hong Kong at the time during the Hong Kong protests, the dem- democratic process, uh, protests. And I wrote an article at the time as to why I didn't partake. Because at my point of view, right, I realized that the protests, right, the Chinese government didn't do anything in response, right? They didn't send any military. They left the military just in their camps. They didn't do anything. They just left us to tear everything up, right? They, all they did was nominally appoint a national security member of staff here, but they didn't really do anything, not until the end when they started arresting journalists. I was wondering why they left us alone for so long. And it turned out that when our democratic protests turn into riots, we have played directly into what the Chinese government actually wanted. <laughs> because what they wanted to do was convince the group of middle class and elderly citizens of Hong Kong that you see, you see what happens when the young take over, right? They smash your restaurants, they push things all around, they disturb your stable way of life. And what can we, the Chinese government, <laughs> offer you? A stable way of life, right. right? And so we went around throwing things and breaking stuff. We thought we were doing a great deal of justice for the dem- for democracy, only to figure out that a few years later, not only did we not achieve anything at all, we have convinced the group of people who were sort of in the middle, sort slightly agreed with us on the matters of democracy and freedom to go completely the opposite side. They've welcomed so the Chinese government in open arms because we've disturbed the one thing that matters to them most, which is their way of living. Right? If you stop people, if you block up the roads and you break their restaurants, you stop people being able to put food on the table, you stop their income, right? We have a mm-hmm. phrase in Chinese that if we take away someone's income, it's like killing their parents, mm. right? Then there's nothing you can say, right? You can talk about freedom all you like, they're not going to buy this. On the other hand, if the Chinese government says that we'll guarantee you stability, we'll guarantee you safety and security, all you have to do is give up your freedom, right? All you have to do is give up your privacy, right? <laughs> Right, you can see how effective this is, right? So, the, the, of course, they didn't have to do anything, right? It's such a powerful, powerful effort, and we played right into their hands. And what did we? What did all those protesters end up doing, right? They escaped, right? They left to other countries. They've now got alternative political careers. Mm. They're now seeking political sort of regis- refugee status in the UK and other places. 
So they did all of that stuff, but they haven't really fought it through. There's a reason why, <laughs> right? Revolutions are much harder these days because you're playing with an opponent that were revolutionaries themselves. Don't forget mm. that the communists did it first, <laughs> right? They, the Chinese, you know, the, the Democratic Party of China, right, and the communists were both themselves revolutionaries. They know all exactly all the tricks <laughs> because they did it themselves. And so it becomes a much more difficult game to play, right? It's like mm -hmm. now we're no longer in a, in a in a place where warfare is done through battle, right? Of physical prowess, which is what we naively, what the protesters naively believe that if we fought back the police, somehow that would change something. It's now a war of perception. And so when you're playing a game of perception, as you say, education, propaganda, news, mm -hmm. social media, that becomes your cannons and your nuclear and your missiles, right? When you control what people think mm -hmm. and how they perceive threat and fear and desire and security and anarchy and chaos, right? Then you suddenly, you don't need to fire a single bullet, right? You no longer have to send out the military. They're just for show, right? Yeah. You can just put there, they come out when there's a typhoon and they clear up rubbish. That's really what the military is for. That's horrifying, but you can't deny it's also very impressive. <laughs> You know, it's like well played. Yeah, something very similar I experienced here in America during the summer of 2020, um, mm. with all the Black Lives Matter protests. Mm. I think the same game. If you control, yeah, the camera frame and where yeah. it's pointing, you control the entire direction of it all. If you just show only mm. the, the 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 worst absolute thing that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I remember protesting, you know, during lockdowns, during the, the pandemic. It was, it was terrifying to be out there. And then protesting in the South, we had um, the Ku Klux Klan driving through, throwing flyers out. Uh, we had someone drive a car through the crowd and hit people. Um, I heard about people around Florida getting shot in the head with the rubber bullets, losing their eyes or becoming permanently brain damaged. Mm -hmm. And um, what do we accomplish? Yeah, I don't, I don't. And you know, when the BLM movement happened, a lot of people donated money, only to find out a few years later, all that money went into the pockets of the <laughs> organizers. They didn't go into any to supporting any of the sort of people involved. And so, you know, when you mention the idea of the small government, that is reminiscent of like the libertarian ideals mm -hmm. of the of the beginnings of America, right? They had this idea that government shouldn't be this all sort of grasping no. all-encompassing power the state should be allowed to run themselves right the 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 most the more the less the government or the central government has is involved in people's lives perhaps the better because the less power mm -hmm. is in the hands of only a few people but of course now you know once you have parties right the states are technically also part of a bigger group Right? You can't help but sort of end up with a big group. And so, you know, because it's easier to organize and if you have money and if you have power, you can always bring people to your side. So very quickly you try this form of unification, you have a big government at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. But you share a very similar view with sort of some Chinese philosophers at the time, right? So Lao Tzu, the founder of, Dao of Taoism, believed in the same thing. He believed fundamentally that the government shouldn't mess with people's private lives. The government should be there right for legal reasons right to monitor the safety and the basic needs of people and that's it 
Everything else should be left to, you know, the private lives of people. Understandably, a lot of people disagree, right? Because of all of these concerns, which is why Taoism and that Lao Tzu also has like an underlying condition. This will only work if you fix the value problem, right? Mm -hmm. The moral problem. And that stems ultimately from a desire problem. Mm -hmm. If desire is out of check, right? If people want things to a extended degree, no matter how big or small or how libertarian or how sort of much of a dictatorship you have, it will not make a difference, right? If people are willing to be happy with little, right, if they're critical thinkers, if they're rational, then a small government is best. If they're full of desire, then inevitably you'll end up with, you know, a large, powerful government, even if that means corruption, even if that means a lot of terrible things happening. So it's actually the people's values that determines the system and the mm. system that de determines the type of government you have values who did it who who uh culturally instills these desires exactly and then you have like a cycle so once you have the system and once you have the people in power they will try and sort of keep the same values that got them elected in the first place, right? Because that was their ladder up. Mm -hmm. That was the very thing that sort of supported their rise to the top. So ideally, they want to keep it the same. So now you have a self-perpetuating cyclical system un until, right, you have a revolution where a group of people who don't share the same values overhaul the entire thing overboard. Or you have a very slow sort of, as you move through time, very slow, progressive uh, changing of values. Right when it comes mm -hmm. to, for instance, slavery or racism or sexism, when you have a very, 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 very slow but bottom-up change of values, but that takes a lot of time. Yes, it does. Right? Most people prefer to go over the guns. <laughs> <laughs> right? But even the guns don't really last. Right? I, I cite a very famous example of the French Revolution. People, you know, pe people who believe a lot in democracies and in revolutions, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, even when we had the Hong Kong protests, a lot of people cited the French Revolution as one of their inspirations, not acknowledging the fact that one, it failed horribly, right? Immediately after the French Revolution, Napoleon mm -hmm. came along and became emperor of France. So that worked fantastic for democracy. Mm -hmm. And two, they were very, very violent and very, very cruel, right? They were democratic, sure, but they were very immoral. <laughs> mm -hmm. They killed anybody with it, which they considered to be sort of the upper classes, without trial, without a fair sort of judgment. It just decapitated people left, right, and center. So very quickly, Napoleon came and got, gained the support of people and crowned himself emperor again. <laughs> and so despite our love of freedom, right, sometimes we lose sight of other things that make freedom possible. So Confucius and Lao Tzu disagree on that point. Confucius is very legalistic. He thinks that as long as we have good systems in place, good legal system in place, and we have all, a lot of rules, the more rules, the more laws, right? We have the more consequences. If we beat you know, children with a stick, we'll get them to behave the way we want to behave. Unfortunately, lots of things that it's just, it ultimately comes down to a desire issue, right? Emperors fight each other for kingdoms, the, the dukes fight each other for territory, right? Merchants fight each other for product, right? Farmers fight each other for basic land, right? In, in terms of, you know, where they can grow their crops. And people fight each other for, you know, for money at the end of the day, right? Or power, or influence, or whatever, or honor. And so if you don't solve the desire issue, people have a self-perpetuating need for more and more and more and more and greed, right? Then 
conflict is almost inevitable. It's a natural, because there's not that much stuff. <laughs> you know, as long as resources are limited, any form of wanting more is going to cause conflict between you and your neighbor. So education. <laughs> What about this? All right. Yeah. Radical idea. All right. So we have yeah. this one pole of fear. Let's set the under mm-hmm. end of the pole. I think it's. I think it's creating unity instead of creating a unity of mm-hmm. fear, creating a unity based on love. Mm. What right. would that even look like? What would a love-based society look like? Well, maybe. You know, I I imagine. You know, I think I think the most important thing in this life is the evolution of consciousness. Mm-hmm. I think that if we prioritize that, um, then I care a lot about your progress, right? Mm-hmm. Because as you progress, as you learn more, I can learn more too, and right. Mm-hmm. And so we all can work together to help build each other up. I don't know. Is that is that a dumb idea? Is that is that stupid? I agree with you, and I think <laughs> in order to do that, we honestly, I think, have to take ourselves less seriously, right?、Yeah. So you mentioned, like, despite the fact that we claim to be very knowledgeable about the sciences or about the real world,、mm-hmm. right? We're now all sort of in the postmodern age where everything is relativistic, including morality,、mm-hmm. right? We seem to still place a lot of importance on the individual, despite the fact that we know that this world is not about us. That the world is much larger, much more universal, no, much、wait. more. Are you serious? Sort of vast. The world's、yeah. not about me and my my comfort. <laughs> and my exactly. This whole universe. So we know this intellectually, and yet, right? We sold this this lie that it is that it's the individual that we're told to pursue our individual dreams or individual goals. It's about me. It's my hopes, my dreams,、mm-hmm. right? And so, that reminds me of a very、um, wonderful and beautiful speech, sort of made by Carl Sagan, who was like a science communicator, particularly dealing with astronomy. And he sort of made this speech that really impacted me. And I and I sort of quoted and paraphrased some of this speech when、uh, during our high school、uh, graduation. I, you know, when you graduate from high school, there's always speeches at the end, right? And I deliberately. Said this as like a little bit of a, my last rebelling <laughs> sort of way of sticking it up to like the education system because it was meant to be a prideful day about individual achievement and I told this and I paraphrased some parts of this speech to make a point. So Carl Sagan says, "Think about our Earth, a pale blue dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives." The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived here on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Right, the Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors, so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. <laughs> Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. 
how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. So it seems, right? If we are truly to take seriously this cosmic <laughs> picture, we would be more understanding of each other. That sounds right? like a bunch Rather of than... spiritual bullshit right there. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that worthless... And yet he's a scientist. The, the thousands yeah. of years of um, traditions and knowledge passed down. Sounds like yeah. a bunch of dumb... Yeah, I mean... It just seems so obvious. Like, like what a what an unsexy world we've like made. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my god! Like, it doesn't have. These are all decisions. You know, as an artist, I'm aware of creative decisions, right? Right. I look out at Brooklyn, probably the ugliest place I've ever lived in my life. Why on earth would it need to be mm. this ugly? Like, my god, <laughs> this is not a pretty thing. This is not a uh-huh. single like. You know, in in Florence, where they, they cared and they, they had love, it's still beautiful. Even though no one there, mm. even though it's a dead city, in my opinion, you know, mm. like, they just, they have that importance because, like, look, what we, we already did everything. We're done. Like, um, mm. but it's so wonderful just to be there. And you don't even think about being poor because they have standards of the food. They love making food. They, they take pride in the quality of it and it's cheap mm-hmm. you know a, a cappuccino there i bet it's still a euro 25 i bet it's still mm-hmm. even with inflation and the cheese and the bread yeah. was so cheap and you just walk around and there's all these places for you to commune and talk with people i i knew that i could go sit out in the piazza and my friends would be there but here in brooklyn you're terrified to go outside and there's times of the day you do not go outside right mm-hmm. and in my old neighborhood it was very normal to hear gunshots, people screaming, to come out in the morning and you step over people that are shooting up or unconscious from doing drugs. Mm-hmm. Or you just see you just see people slumped over and drooling. And, and there's, mm-hmm. there's needles everywhere and trash and, and rats. And it's like, why on earth? Why? Mm-hmm. How? I, I don't even understand how, how you can have yeah. no standards. But, mm-hmm. you know... A world, a world based on on love. That just sounds stupid and hippie, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Why is that so impossible? I think it's because <laughs> in the current world we live in, right? It's undeniable that if you are a person who is more loving, who is less cynical, less selfish, and less egoistic and less self-important, you tend not to do that well. Right, just as a fact, right, compared to people who, right, there's no denying that people who get into positions of power want it, right, and the system perpetuates that people who tend to get into those positions 
have certain qualities, right, that make them fit for office. Mm-hmm. Not in the sense that they're people that we generally want to we want to be there, mm-hmm. but there's a reason why they got there, right? And so in the current game that we're playing, like if you play Monopoly, there's you're not going to get very far if you're nice, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If you if you don't buy any properties and if if you're free if you refuse to build any hotel or houses, you're going to lose mm-hmm. because the rent that you will get from that measly owning a little bit of property is never going to match the pen, the rent you have to pay if you accidentally land on someone's hotel. <laughs> right? So if this is the design of the game, then it's no wonder, right? Virtues of love and understanding and contentment ultimately lose out to things like, you know, desire and fear mm-hmm. and sort of ego and self-importance. So Lao Tzu did a very, very wise decision right he just left <laughs> right he went somewhere on his own and he chilled out for the rest of his days because <laughs> he realized that the game was it was not going to habit you know him that like he just mm-hmm. didn't belong and so confucius took a different approach he thought well i could do that right and he and he sort of to try he really really tried to be accepted he went you know when he was expelled from his own home country he went to other the other of the seven nobody wanted him <laughs> Despite being hailed as a saint and this amazing person who taught virtue and things like that, nobody wanted him. Nobody wanted him as a government official. Nobody wanted him in their city, right? So he, he was cast out multiple times. In the end, he thought that actually, all I can do is try and educate. So he spent the the, la- the last sort of ten twenty years of his life when he managed to finally return to his home country, to, saying, "Okay, I don't want anything to do with politics anymore. I don't want I, like as a as a younger man, I might have craved a position so I can make an influence. Turns out, I'd rather teach, rather be an educator, right? Because only at this very bottom level can I actually influence the minds of tomorrow, right? Teach, trying to give them a perspective that mm-hmm. may be different from what they are experiencing at the moment. Teach them things that character, integrity, and love and understanding is probably worth more than things like desire, putting food on the table. But that's a really hard sell, right? <laughs> it's a really, really difficult thing to convince people to give up that sort of thing for. But if there's anybody who you're going to sell this idea to would be people who are young, who have not been indoctrinated yet, who still are open-minded, who are still capable of being critical. Oh boy, how... Not for long. Yeah. So to sort of bring this close to like an end and like a summary, I'd like to sort of read you something that uh, I've actually written myself like a, 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 mm-hmm. a few years ago, like an attempt at almost like a kid's children's story um and it's called like the otherworldly visitor right mm-hmm. and the story goes a little bit something like this an alien sort of walks into a bar orders a coke this is not the beginning of a joke by the way although it sounds like mm-hmm. you know and and a particular like and the coke is a particular drink he has somehow heard of right so next to him sits a person relaxing at the end of their work day and the alien says well exclaims greetings right i'm new around here right obviously i'm an alien would you mind helping me with a few questions right new to earth so not expecting conversation, the other person is started into com- polite compliance, like, okay, you know, and the alien widens his facial muscles into an expression that he now knows is called a smile. And he says, you know, you know, thank you. Can I, you know, can I ask, what is it that you do? 
surprised at like such a personal question. He was probably expecting, you know, where's the bathroom, you know, where's so and so. But he was amused by the interest. The person says, "Well, I, I happen to work for for CERN, right? I'm a scientist, basically. I work with atoms, that sort of thing." And then goes, "Well, fascinating. Please tell me more. What do people of this world know about this sort of stuff?" It's like, oh, "Okay, well, I'll try and explain this in like layman's terms." And the alien sort of interjects like, okay, but please be elaborate. I'm a student of these matters, but I've traveled this far, and I want to know. And so, okay, I see. So you must also be an aspiring scientist. So here goes. So what we understand is that the world is made up of things. And what we've seen is that these things comprise of smaller constituent parts, right? My job as a scientist at CERN is to take these things and then smash them together with a machine called a particle accelerator. From this, we're able to discern even smaller bits that make up the world. Of course, technically speaking, all of the bits are the same, but they behave differently, so we call them different names to differentiate them. To use an example, it's a bit like studying water, right? It can be ice, it can be steam, but it's fundamentally the same stuff. Science is the study of how this stuff behaves, right, and working out how the world works from the behavior of this stuff. And the aliens sort of ask, so why can't you just look at it? Why do you have to smash it apart with machines? Well, the scientist sort of grins, like, that's a great question. Let me put it this way. In the history of the human knowledge of the natural world, we can divide our investigation into three aspects. One is how we perceive the world, two is what we know about the world, and three, how the world really is. Right? So we started off acquiring knowledge based on how we perceive the world, right? and thus assuming this is just how the world really is. But as we got better at scientific inquiry, we came to realize that the gap between perception and our knowledge of the world was getting wider. So how we perceive the world with our senses was getting farther and farther away from the results we obtained from experimentation using increasingly advanced equipment and improved methods. So this told us two things. Firstly, that our perceptions aren't that great at telling us about the world, and there was a very good reason for that. Our minds only needed to tell us their best guesses, the best story or version of the world that would keep us alive. And it has no real evolutionary drive for grasping how the world actually is. We knew, therefore, that we needed to remove the human element from our methods to deal with our biases. So secondly, this hinted that they were getting closer to how the world really is. But there is no way of telling us how far there is to go, though we are definitely sure that we are farther along than before. You mentioned that all this stuff was fundamentally the same. So what do you mean by that? Well, thanks to a little someone by the name of Albert Einstein, what we've theorized is that all matter is an expression of energy acting in a certain way. And we've come to acknowledge that the differences between things can consist in how things behave at higher levels as well as in what they are fundamentally. But the universe began with only one set of ingredients, if you'd like. And then all of these other things sub subsequently arose from complications of the very same ingredients we started off with. So the alien's quite happy, right? He's like, so does this mean, like, you people have basically figured everything out? Right? <laughs> You've got it. Right? A whole picture of everything. So laughter erupted. And they, the scientist says, well, not even close. We have ideas. We have a bunch of theories. But we don't yet understand everything as it is. We can't, right? We don't even know what we don't know about, <laughs> right? The things we look for are very, very small. And the descriptions we have of how things work at tiny levels are perpetually being limited to our current knowledge and imagination. We have difficulty working out from the smallest scales we have to describe how big things work. Correspondingly, we ha might have great explanations of how big stuff works, yet we can't seem to work down from that to the smaller stuff. <laughs> Something is so just is missing between the two to make the puzzle fit together. But when we have that, we may just have a theory of everything. And so the alien asks, so does anything exist other than stuff, right? 
and the scientist sort of thinks like, hmm, that's, you know, that's a good question. That's stuff we don't know anything about, like is what we call dark matter. Many of us used to think that non-things like space and time independently exist, that you could define a point in space and measure the passage of time in absolute terms. But then we decided that actually these two things, space and time, are better defined by descriptions of how stuff is in relation to itself. Right? So space is much more accurately defined as the positional relationship between objects. Positions in space have meaning in as much as they have relative descriptions of where things are and how they behave relative to each other. When we say that space is expanding, what we are really saying is that things are moving away from each other. Right? In fact, we have recently detected gravitational waves as a result of huge cosmic events in the universe, proving the universe's vast spatial connection, by which big enough events can cause detectable ripples between stuff, right, between things. All matter, all things, can poetically be said to be connected or related spatially. And Einstein told us as much as well. So then there is time, right? If space wasn't enough of a, of a, of a mind break, right, there's also time. There is no tick-tock in the universe to count the seconds, right? Time is measured in relative changes. Matter moves and then vibrates, and our experience of this changes, of this change gives us time. Not only this, but space and time are intimately related. We move through both simultaneously. Space is really space-time. The, spa the passage through space-time is malleable, depending on one's relative speed compared to other objects and one's experience of an attractive force called gravity, which arises between matter. We call this effect time dilation. So if you put atomic clocks in a fast-moving rocket and or on a shelf at home or on top of a mountain at the bottom, the clocks themselves are starting to go out of sync. They are literally experiencing the, ex the change of time differently, which is an amazing blow to our intuitive uh, intuition with, with this sort of stuff. So the alien pondered all of this, right? He basically just got a full universe in 10 seconds, in, in like 10 minutes in a, in, a, in, a, in a sitting. And so he finally spoke and he said, so what does all of this mean? Okay, so it seems like We've reached a point in science where you, even though you might not know everything, but you have a very good grasp of most things, from really big to the really small. So are you telling me that all matter basically consists of the same stuff, that we each experience the differences subjectively, and we are basically imaginations of ourselves, right? So the scientist nearly falls off their seat, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa okay, well, I can't say that for sure. That's a huge leap in conclusion, but it's a possibility. But it's bad practice to jump to conclusions quickly, right? Science progresses slowly and methodically. So the alien asks, well, so what do you do with all this knowledge, right? What do you do with this context of the world then? What gets you up in the morning and what's the point? Like the big question, right? Then there's like a furrowing of eyebrows, right? He says that the sort of scientist says, well, that's not necessarily my expertise, right? Maybe those questions are best left for the philosophers, right, if you'd like. But I will say this, I don't know if we'll even come close to a complete comprehension of all of this. As far as I know, the world is this vast thing. It doesn't judge, it doesn't punish, and it doesn't reward. It just is, and we just are, at least for a little while. There's no compelling reason why any of it or all of it should be coherent. The scientist like pauses for a second and continues. Maybe there's comfort in that, maybe there isn't. The way I see it, and I hope to paraphrase from what I remember of Bill Hicks, who was a comedian, the world is like a ride in an amusement park, right? When we're on it, we think it's real because that's how powerful our minds are. Even when I know my perceptions don't tell me the truth, I live my days with working definitions of my mind's best guest, right? The ride goes up, down, round and round, his thrills and chills is very brightly colored and it's very loud. 
and it's fun for a while. Some people have been here for some time and they ask, is this real or is this just a ride? Some people have figured it out and they remind us, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid because this is just a ride. But we forget that easily, right? We get wrapped up in our investments in the ride. You know, look at my bank account, my family. This has to be real, right? Of course, it being not real isn't really a problem in itself because after all, it's just a ride. But we can affect our experiences of this ride. We have choices. We can express what we feel. Fear, right, to bring it back to something you mentioned, makes us want to shut our ourselves from others, antagonize, alienate, and separate. It makes us jealous, angry, prideful, indifferent. Love instead sees us all as one of the same stuff. Right? It reminds us that we can choose to be compassionate, decent, and kind. We can share and help and care for one another. Maybe when we adopt that, we can have a better chance at exploring space, right? Out towards the universe and deep within ourselves. We have just one admission to this ride. Unfortunately, at some point, we'll do everything for the last time, right? We'll eat our last meal, see our friends for the last time. And here's the kicker. We won't know that it's going to be the last time. So when you ask me what the point is, well, I hope to discover more about the world and my place within it. When it comes down to choosing how to live, and here's some advice, right? We're not just here for us, right? We're here to be there for each other, to help each other through struggle until we pass. And that's really it, right? Good people try and do good things for others. That's it. That's the entire game, <laughs> the end, right? We have so much to give and we have to try even if it doesn't work out for us ultimately. And that's okay because, right, it's just a ride. So the alien sort of nodding in tune with what the scientist is saying sort of smiles, right? And there's a, cos a consonance between what he knew of the universe and the words of the scientist. Um, so, so he takes one more sip of his coffee and he heads out the door, sort of satisfied with the conversation. Anyway, that was a bit long, but <laughs> I think that's a good summary of basically everything sort of we talked about, fear and love, the problems of education, of what we're being told is one case and what we do with it in another. I mean, we're, we get a lot of information. Our education consists mostly of information about the world, but you're right. What do we do with this information <laughs> is the problem. <laughs> Right? We know so much. We're the most knowledgeable generation there's ever been. We know so much. And yet, we seem quite lost. Yeah, I'm thinking now. I'm thinking now, let's, let's give some, maybe like some practical advice. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's all great theory. Um, mm -hmm. If you study any philosophy, it makes sense to care about defining the good, acting from a place of love, and being critical. That's just mm. foundational philosophy. But um, so at moments when we were upset with the system, we lashed out mm. in these protests, right? We lashed out. Right. We were acting from a place of fear. And I remember the whole time I was there, I was very scared that something bad mm. was going to happen to us. What if instead of lashing out in fear, we mm. came from a place of love? And what would mm. that look like? If instead of all those protesters going out and, and doing all that stuff, what if they all became police? Mm. What if every single one of those protesters who really cared about this issue actually became police? Mm. Or what if all these people that care about global warming, what if they all became environmental scientists? Mm. 
Or if they all started doing that, or, or me, I care about education. I care about the evolution of consciousness, right? And as a painter alone in my studio, a lot of times I feel very useless and mm -hmm. selfish. That's one reason why I made this, mm -hmm. right? What if, we, what if everyone who cared about education and actually helping people went and became educators? And the thing that mm -hmm. stops that from really happening in the public school system is the salary. Mm. Highly educated people see that salary, and that's it. Mm. Right? That's what really prevents change. And they know it. Mm. Where are all the highest paying teaching jobs? You know, if you want to get a high paying one, it's probably in a private school for the elite. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So I think if you want to act from a place of love, instead of tearing down the system, mm -hmm. instead of lashing out, and, and mm. harming your neighborhood and, and burning things mm. or, or being upset at your parents or your government and, and whatever, mm. what if you join it and mm. just refuse to act from a place of fear? Mm. Just completely refuse to, to do that at all and participate in that. Mm. And, you know, who are the people that actually did that? I mean, like, I mean, the, the most, probably the most beautiful acts of, of humanity I've seen was like, in Vietnam, those, those monks who just lit themselves on fire. Mm. Mm. Like, what an extraordinary symbol that was. Or, mm. you know, um, you know, the, 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 you know like, like Martin Luther King, another incredible leader, uh, just refused to, to come from a place of fear, um, mm. just chose love. And when you think about all these great leaders, they came from a place of love. They refused to partake in fear, mm. right? Um, I don't know, join, join the system that you hate mm -hmm. and, and do something good there instead of complaining about it, right? Yeah. I completely agree. But I think there, there's two steps before that. Okay. <laughs> One, I think you have to be self-aware and critically minded enough to not join the system and end up being part of it. Right. I think a, a lot of people genuinely share that inclination yeah and they do begin by thinking they can they can make a difference in the system that they join right, right? i think every young-minded person who as a kid wanted to become a police officer for instance genuinely believed in like the supernatural or super uh superhero notion of justice as a kid mm -hmm. right? as a kid they definitely had great intentions but once they join the police force what they realize is that the system right is very easily right corrupting mm -hmm. so i can speak you know hong kong history before uh 1973 before icac the independence uh sort of uh agency against corruption before it was established right corruption was so widespread in the police force that you if you wanted to be alive and become a police officer you had to take a cut because if you didn't take a cut right you wouldn't be considered as part of the group. And so you wouldn't live for very long, mm -hmm. right? So if that is the choice, you had no, so you know, you have no choice, right? Effectively, you can choose to die and end up contributing nothing to the system, or you can take the money and being part of the system, <laughs> right? So I'm not saying that, that it's to that degree, but you can definitely see that police officers that even who begin as well-meaning sort of individuals end up, not being able to make a difference as a result of that, of just being influenced. So one, it's the 
mental strength to be able to, and that takes a lot of personal self, a lot of self-love in the beginning, right? And then the second step is technical, right? You have to be knowledgeable enough to be able to play the game effectively, right? So Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, for instance. Mm -hmm. Gandhi was a lawyer, mm -hmm. right? So he just, he didn't do this out of just nowhere. He wasn't just some random guy. <laughs> he knew the legal system, right. right? He studied law at UCL, he studied law at the UK, right? And so he brings an element of expertise. He has to have a technical skill set, right? In order to actually make a difference. So one is about mental strength, one is about technical skill set. And then third, right, once you're in the system, you have to recognize that you also need support. You can't do it alone, right? Because if you're doing it alone, you're, you're doing anti-corruption alone in a police force, right? You're so screwed, right? Like, you'll be dead by morning, right? So you need a lot of help, but you need to be able to have social power. And so these three traits, Muhammad, like the people that you raised, Martin Luther King, these leaders had that ability. They realized that they couldn't do it themselves. They realized they couldn't do it without a skill set, right? And they realized they couldn't do it with like a personal sort of belief mm -hmm. or some sort of uh, mental strength. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, very quickly they would be, you know, they would just join the club as it, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so... I completely agree, right? I fully intend to, against the sort of advice of many good friends who have left Hong Kong, fully intend to go back to Hong Kong to become an educator, become a teacher, knowing full well that jail is a very, very possible thing, right? But I, you know, I consider Bertrand Russell, who was a philosopher who taught at the University of Cambridge, who was a professor there, he went to jail for being a pacifist during the Second World War, right? He spoke out against sort of human violence, right? Um, and he wrote a lot of that, and he did some of his best philosophical work, philosophical work in jail, right? Nothing like a bit of quiet time, <laughs> right? But if you truly believe in something, then you can't run away, right? So I'm not saying that people, that the protesters and the people who were fighting for democracy did a bad thing, right? I think they generally came from a good place. But one, they lacked the technical ability, and they lacked the genuine social support required for, to, for, for change to happen. Right. As you as you say, you have to go into the belly of the beast. Right? We no longer live in a time where, you know, people, nor ordinary people, raising arms against the government can generally be effective. And no, <laughs> we're just so no. technical, technologically out outmatched yeah. Yeah. in every way. There's just no way of doing that thing anymore. So we have to be smart about it. And so yes, I full I fully agree. In, in when you when you're doing your education, you're starting a new school now. When you're doing this podcast. Yeah, these are the ways to try and use, right? We're fully aware that the podcasting industry is, <laughs> is in of itself, right? In service, in majority of a, of, of a system in of itself. Yeah. But we're very much trying to use it to the best of our advantage. So you're saying, okay, not only join, but you need to get a technical education so you really understand this system well right and then yeah. you need support right so you're not going in alone you need a group of mm -hmm. people who, who think like you to help support you as you go through this yeah and it's not just technical knowledge about the particular field you're doing i'm talking about knowledge what aristotle would call practical wisdom okay Right? You need to know how to not just know the rules of the game, but also play the game well. So there was that <laughs> funny phrase from an old Chinese comedy, an old Hong Kong comedy, which deals with corruption in sort of the Qing dynasty. It says like, D 
decent, right? Uh, sort of corrupt and evil sort of government officials are evil, but decent politicians have to be even more evil. <laughs> right? So, yeah. because, you know. I don't know, like, I just think the Lao, I really like Lao Tzu, but I think going out to live in the mountains, <laughs> that's it. And, you know, you know, people looking for spiritual development, it's easy in a temple. Mm-hmm. Try try to be an enlightened person in in yeah. a place like New York City, uh, yeah. and with all this social pressure and money issues, this is where yeah. those people need to be, or anywhere, just anywhere in life. Yeah. The work on the people around you, you know. Yeah, <laughs> the mountain temple stuff is good is if good. you don't have, like, the first aspect. If you don't have the mental strength and you're genuinely concerned about. The system having an influence on your own mind, right. which is actually, which is true. Like you can't deny that yeah. the outward world is going to have an influence. So if that is the case, right, you can't maintain your own values. Yeah. Right? You know that you're susceptible. So the mountain temple route might be a good idea. You go into some cabin in the woods somewhere and take a little bit of time off to practice some self love, right? <laughs> self cultivate. But if you can do it then you better make yourself useful. And that's the same with Buddhism, yeah. right? In the beginning, like the majority of the Buddhist community are of the first type. Mm-hmm. But to the people who can maintain their level of mental strength, mm-hmm. uh, there's a particular sutra that's quite funny, which involves uh, an enlightened individual basically giving a spanking to all of the top disciples of the Buddha. <laughs> and so one of the, the smartest, the most wisest of the Buddhist disciples Sariputta was meditating in the forest one day. He was already an arahant. He was already, as, as it were, spiritually enlightened. And he says, why are you sitting there? Mm-hmm. Right? With what mind are you sitting there? He asks. If you are sitting with no mind at all, you are no better than a rock or a piece of wood. <laughs> You're useless. <laughs> right? But if you, if you are sitting there with a mind, then you are no different from the rest of us. You have a disturbed mind. Right? Mm-hmm. So the middle way. Can you maintain your own integrity and then be unmoved by the corruption and the terrible things in the world, yet be of service? If you're unmoved, but you don't do anything to the service of other people, then what's the point of you? <laughs> so basically gave this verbal spanking, right? And so it's a very funny sort of sutra in Buddhism because it's trying to get people who do fall into the first category, who just look out for themselves and their own peace. Mm-hmm. Um, to try and shift them towards, okay, you have a skill set and you have the ability to genuinely be a good influence in the world, if you'd like, mm-hmm. right? Why don't you try? <laughs> <laughs> sort of try and be useful. And, yeah. but, that's a very, but that's a very hard ask. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm upset right now, so I'm like, I'm like saying this stuff, but you're being very reasonable <laughs> and then showing me how, how complex the situation is. Yeah. It's very, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's almost impossible. But um, I don't know. I don't know. We have to try. <laughs> we have to try. We must have hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now that I said this, I'll go back to sitting in my room and painting my paintings. <laughs> Yeah. But that is an element of self-cultivation. Because if you didn't have that in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. If you couldn't have a practice, right, whether it be artistic or whatever, that allows yourself to be at a point of critical reflection and self-awareness, right. 
if you're just as unaware as everybody else, yeah. then you can't help anybody, right? Yeah. So helping other people, part of helping other people is helping yourself, right? That is a necessary mm-hmm. sort of part of it. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's just recognizing that you know, we also have our own personal needs. We have to take care of those first. Right. But there's a very fine line between indulging our desires mm-hmm. and satisfying our genuine necessities. Right. So a lot of people start off with great ambitions to help people, but you'll find that they need more and more basic needs <laughs> before, before starting to help people. Right. So I, I know a lot of, so Hank Green wrote a brilliant book about this called, um, oh, what's it called? Anyway, he wrote it like a book recently, his most recent book, and it's about the same idea, like influencers who find themselves at a point of influence and fame and reputation. Mm-hmm. And they genuinely have the ambition to want to help other people. But they start excusing themselves and start saying to themselves, well, I'll do this first. Right? If I do this first and if I betray my own morals once, I'll get more fame. And then the payoff, the amount mm-hmm. of help I can do later on, mm-hmm. will be larger. So they do this again and again and again. And they never get to actually helping anybody. They just keep on accumulating more fame, right? So they keep on accumulating influence, but they don't ever use that influence for anything. Mm-hmm. So, but that is like an easy loop because what is enough? <laughs> There's always going to be more. Right? Imagine if Gandhi or, or Martin Luther King did that. It's like, as long as I get, you know, if I manage to get one more community, then I'll start doing the civil rights thing. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a tough problem. Yeah. So, but wait, you know, I completely agree that education is where it's going to start. And of course, when it comes to education, to bring it back to, to like your first point, no, being aware of the facts is the first step towards an awareness of what education is, mm-hmm. what we want to get out of an education, and how can we sort of effectively educate ourselves. Mm-hmm read all the books that they don't want you to read. (laughs) I mean, as, as I become more educated, you know, I'm Mm. very active in my self-education and as I become more Mm. creative, I was so unaware of how controlled my mind was. Once I began starting to try to be creative, I I found that I was like crippled. Mm. Why can't I just be free in my mind? Why can't I? I'm in my studio alone. Who cares what goes on my canvas? Why do I have all mm-hmm. these limitations? Or like mm-hmm. when I start being intellectually, you know, more adventurous, why mm-hmm. do I instantly just shut people down that I believe are too dumb to listen to? Like I thought I was really free thinking, but actually mm-hmm. I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. even now, like I know that there's many more walls that I don't even know about. I know I'm still extremely biased and that it's going to take years and years to actually mm-hmm. become more free, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's never done. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like the scientist says, we know we were freer than before. We right? were freer than before, that's right. <laughs> we're making progress. <laughs> we don't know how, how much unbinding there is to go, right? Yeah. Right. We might come across something new, but at least we're getting, we're moving in the right direction. Right. That, that has to be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, yeah, we're, we're both swimming in a deep, dark ocean with no way to measure how far we've gone. Right. 
But we end with a message of hope. Oh. That's the. <laughs> we just know that we're moving. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Dylan, and thank you for everyone listening. And I hope that you are critically creative. <laughs>